this month, for some reason, when I drive around at night <clears throat> and I see the, the Christmas lights or the holiday lights to be PC, um, I've, I've been appreciating them more than ever, more than I usually do in terms of the symbolism, you know, of the, the solstice and how the, 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 the dark time of the day has been accumulating more and more and then slowly, slowly the light starts to come back in and, you know, just the symbol of awakening, really. And the last couple days, uh, this line's just been running through my mind. I was just kind of thinking, in a way, it just feels like a time when I personally need inspiration and the world could use some inspiration. We all could use some inspiration. And... um, Anyway, this line that comes, it's a fairly common uh, phrase in many of the nuns, the first Buddhist nuns' enlightenment poems. And this kept coming to my mind. I'll just read this, this paragraph. It's a kind of a classic description in these poems of a, a woman's awakening. Everywhere the love of pleasure is destroyed... The great dark is torn apart, and death, you too, are destroyed. And that's just been running through my mind. Everywhere the love of pleasure is destroyed, I know some of us don't really want to destroy the love of pleasure. Um, The great dark is torn apart. That image I love. And so since it's been running through my mind, it just made me start thinking more about the poems of the first nuns, and I decided that it makes me happy to talk about them, to tell their stories and read their poems. So that's what I'm going to do tonight. Um, You know, we hear so much, well, if we read the suttas, I mean, if we're in the scene, we hear so much about the monks at the time of the Buddha. So many of his discourses begin, O bhikkhus, And it's been very, over the years, supportive and inspiring to me to uh, read about, get in touch with the stories and the poems of many of the women, who, many of whom were nuns at the time of the Buddha. A few, a couple I'll tell the stories about, were lay women. I mean, did not, they were all lay women to begin with, obviously, did not become nuns. And what I like about it, for me, is knowing the story of each woman and then having the translation of the poem that she wrote. It it takes the whole thing, for me, out of the realm of mythology, of a story, because it makes, for me, the women really real. You know, they feel like my sisters. They feel like all of us, the men, too, you know, going through the same difficulties coming from all different walks of life, some very easily walking on the path of awakening, some really struggling for years and years. Of course, if we have a poem from them, that means they got enlightened. We don't really have a lot of poems of all the ones who were struggling and didn't make it. But that's, that's beside the point. <laughs> it's more to me, anyway, just, just hearing them and seeing the different qualities and mm, the depth of faith and perseverance and commitment and inspiration that comes to me from their poems. I just, it just makes me happy to talk about it, so I want to share it with you all again tonight. So, of course, the first woman I have to talk about is the, the one who's considered really the, the woman who was the, uh, the mother of the bhikkhuni order, the woman because of whom um, the Buddha actually agreed to ordain women in the first place. And that's Mahapajapati Gotami, his stepmother, his, really his aunt. Because, you know, the Buddha's mother died when he was a week old. And his, his aunt, his mother's younger sister, was also married to the Buddha's father. Kings have a lot of wives in those days. <clears throat> and she raised the Buddha along, well, he wasn't the Buddha then. 
Judaism, along with uh, her son, her daughter. And when, and the Buddha, as you know, he went off and got enlightened and left his family. And he came back and um, was teaching and preaching to his family, and they became followers. And so when uh, Mahapajapati Gotami's husband, King Sudodana, when he died, she faced a situation that was the situation of many Indian women in that time. In that time, and I don't know how different it is today, somewhat, but in that time in India, women's place in society was um, accorded to the man that she was connected with. In other words, she was the daughter of someone when she lived with her father. She was the wife of someone when she lived with her husband, and she was the mother of someone and lived with her son. Women were very connected to men. So when her husband died, at that point, her son and her nephew, the Buddha, her son had gone off and become a monk. And she didn't really have uh, any man to protect her. And in another way, she was also free then to do what she wanted. And there were many other women at that same time in that um, tribe is the wrong word, but in that kinship group that were also without husbands. One, because many had gone off and become monks <laughs> with the Buddha, <laughs> leaving behind their wives and mothers and daughters. Um, second, at this time, her, her family and King Sudodana's family, you know, their extended kin, they had a war over the water rights to a particular river. You know, they're so related, but they had a war and many men got killed. The Buddha was called in at that time to arbitrate. And he was so inspiring in calling people to peace that then a whole lot of other men went off and uh, became bhikkhus as well. So this left um, Mahapajapati and many, many women, they say 500 women, Andy Olensky, who, uh, the head of BCBS, who's a poly scholar, he says that when they say 500 people, it basically means a big bunch of people, a lot of people. It's kind of shorthand. So Mahapajapati was really inspired, just as inspired as her male kin by the Buddha's teaching and by the possibility of awakening. So she went, she had great faith, and she went together with 500 women to the Buddha and asked him, saying, you know, she also wanted to become uh, a mendicant, she wanted to ordain to become a nun. And there were no nuns, it was just a wandering order of monks. And at this time, it would have been very kind of shocking. It wasn't done to make an equal order of nuns. And the Buddha said no. And when she asked him the requisite three times, after the third time of which he's supposed to say yes, if he's going to say yes, he still said no. You know, he said, enough, Gotami. Don't set your heart on women being allowed to do this, which is like a final no. And he took his robes and went wandering off to <clears throat> another town, to Vesali. So Pajapati shaved her head, put on orange robes, which in India, uh, even now, it's the same now, wandering aesthetics dressed in orange, men and women both. So she shaved her head, dressed in orange, and barefoot, accompanied by all these women, followed him to this next town. Now remember, she's the wife of a king. So for her walking barefoot 200 miles, when she got there, her feet were swollen and bleeding, and she was exhausted, and she stood outside the hall where the Buddha was, weeping. But she wasn't, remember, this wasn't like some kind of um, um, challenge to the Buddha. She just felt so filled with faith and determination you know, just that sense of urgency. Yes, I want to really renounce the world and practice the Dhamma, you know. But she wasn't trying to push the Buddha. She just followed him because that's where her heart was. And she's standing outside crying, and then Ananda, you know, the Buddha's attendant, came along. And this is one of the many, many places in the sutta that, that uh, has the effect of making one really love Ananda. 
because he was so kind, you know. And his motivation always seems to be, what can I do to help people come closer to the Buddha, come closer to the Dhamma, you know, kind in a really impersonal way. So, of course, he knew her, because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, so of course he knew her. And he said, you know, what's going on? And she told him, and he went to the Buddha and said, Sairapajapati standing outside with swollen feet, covered with dust and crying, because you do not permit women to renounce their homes and enter into the homeless state. It would be good, Lord, if women were to have permission to do this. And he says, enough, Ananda. Don't set your heart on this. Ananda asked the requisite three times, after which the Buddha still said no. But Ananda doesn't give up. He knows the way around the Buddha. He said, uh, let me think about it a different way. Are women able, Lord, when they have entered into homelessness, to realize the fruits of stream entry, once returning, non-returning, and arhanship? In other words, can they have the same awakening as men? And the Buddha said, yes, that is so. So then Ananda said, if women are able to realize perfection, and since Pajapati was of great service to you, she was your aunt, nurse, foster mother. When your mother died, she even suckled you at her own breast. It would be good if women could be allowed to enter into homelessness. And he basically just wore the Buddha down. So at this point, the Buddha said, all right, okay, women can enter. And he made eight special rules which drive all um, contemporary women crazy. (laughs) We're not going to go, I don't want to go into the politics, because who knows the politics of that time. He made rules that basically were for women's protection, but also the, the first rule being that the most senior nun still had to bow to the most junior monk. And he doesn't explain, of course, why he does things, but because he's made it clear that has nothing to do with awakening any woman, any man can awaken, my best guess is it was to do with um, how women are perceived in society and just trying not to make a, a ruckus. So Pajapati, at any rate, she agreed with great gratitude and became a nun, as did the 500 women with her. And Pajapati, over time, became a great teacher. She was clearly a very committed, courageous, and um, energetic person, filled with great faith and perseverance, you know, not to be turned down. I could imagine if I'd slept really far after a teacher, a really revered teacher, and he kept telling me no, how easy it would be to go, oh, okay, if you say so, I'll go somewhere else, you know. And she's, no, of course, she did raise him. There is something to that. But, you know, she just, I'm not taking no for an answer, really, but in a very loving way. But, and something that's interesting, just to know that she, she had this kind of courage and faith in knowing that women are just as able to awaken as men, and she kept that. Not sort of what we'd say trying to push the envelope a little bit to the end. It's not talked about much, but at some point later, she went back to the Buddha and asked him if he would revoke that first rule, the one that, that senior nuns have to bow to junior monks. And he, he said no. He said, I can't do it. How did he say it? No. Oh. He said, I can't do it. I can't allow it. Even those teachers of false dharma don't permit such conduct in relation to women. So then how can I do it, basically? We can't understand it. It's, but it, I, it's cultural. Don't waste your time on it. But just I'm bringing it up to show you the kind of courage and uh, steadfastness of heart. Also, it's said, and this is a little mythological, but she died very old. They say 120. But when she was very sick, she knew she was going to die. At that point, some of the monastic rules that had sprung up were that uh, a sick nun could not be visited by a monk. And all the rules just had sprung up in uh, reaction. The Buddha would make a rule whenever something happened that caused harm to a monk or a nun or that shook the faith of lay people. And that's really important to remember. 
a lot of the monks' rules are about, you know, a lot of the things about, like this would be one, that a a monk couldn't visit a sick nun. It wouldn't be that there's something bad about a monk visiting a sick nun, but that lay people could get the wrong idea and talk and shake their faith. And that's really interesting. The Buddha put a lot of uh, importance on that. But anyway, Pajapati knew that it was against the rules, but she requested that the Buddha come to her. And he did. So in effect, he did, that changed the rule again by his doing that. He came to her when she was dying. So I just want to read to you her poem because it brings up some of her qualities. Homage to you, Buddha, the best of all beings, who set me and many others free from pain. All pain is understood. The cause, the craving is dried up. The noble eightfold way unfolds. I have reached the state where everything stops. I have been mother, son, father, brother, grandmother, knowing nothing of the truth I journeyed on. But I have seen the Blessed One. This is my last body, and I will not go from birth to birth again. Look at the disciples all together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas. I love that. Because if you think about it, that last stanza, that's you. That's all of us, the disciples all together, their energy, their sincere effort. This is homage to the Buddhas. That's part of what I find so inspiring, reading about and just connecting with the energy of these women. Because just as at that time, down through all these two and a half centuries, it's still so that there are women and men with their sincere effort and energy practicing in that way, giving homage to all the Buddhas. And I think having spoken with each of you in the last couple days, I've felt really inspired by the depth of commitment. And for many of you, it's been years and years and years of your life commitment, ups and downs. And I know a lot of times we only lose touch with what is this all about? Why am I doing it? But just the being together with this sincere effort, with your sincere energy, it is paying homage to the Buddhas and keeping the, the Buddha Sangha, the Buddha Sasana alive. You know, we're really direct descendants of these women. In fact, uh, one of the things I've loved in the last three or four years, whatever it is, that I've been teaching that retreat in northern Burma at Chaswa is, um, you know, up in Sagaing, there's many monasteries and there's many nunneries. And right next door to the monastery where our retreat is, there's, there's three nunneries. And one of them has like 40 nuns, one has 35, the other smaller has 10 or 14. Nuns ranging this, this from little girl, like five or six, in her little pink robe. She is so cute. Up through all range of ages, you know, up to really older women. And, you know, they're just doing it, living the life. It's a hard life. But with great dedication. And, of course, a whole range of personalities, a whole range of, you know, ways that they are. But the sense of the radiance from some of these women, even as little as we can talk, you know, because we we can't talk very well, I don't speak English, I don't speak Burmese. But the last couple of years, we've been inviting some of them to come over in our last sitting in the evening. It's at 8 o'clock at night, it's dark. They, you know, it's it's work for them. They're studying, most of them are studying very hard to um, pass these uh, poly exams that are given every year. And, I mean, they're really working hard. And they have to go out and, and, you know, try and get their food. So they come over, though, uh, to do some chanting at the beginning of our sitting. And there's something about that. I can't really, I can just describe it, but I can't really give you the feeling. 
where it's dark, they come filing in, in you know, their order of ordination, they always walk in order, come and sit down and start chanting, and you know, it just feels like we could be sitting back there in Vesali, you know, 2,600 years ago. And they're just so, I don't know, I just I get this feeling of timelessness and the power of the Buddha Sasana and the men and women who have kept it alive and are keeping it alive. So even though we're not in robes, we're part of that. So you can see in reading about the different women, the different nuns um, at that time, how they came from all different factions of life. So Mahapajapati Gotami, she came from a very privileged class. And it's true that um, some of the other women who became great teachers to the other nuns as well came from privileged class. But also some of the women became great teachers, but some became, you know, just kind of depending on their uh, personality. Just like us, we each express our dhamma, we each express our insights and our awakenings in the way that's unique to our particular personality, our particular life situation, our particular choices. And that's the same with these women. Some became teachers, some um, became like inspirational, like, like Mahapajapati. She wasn't so much a teacher as just a guide and inspiration. Others became very um, uh, quiet ascetics, you know, just living in, in quiet and renowned for their asceticism. Some just became, um, not just, some became very much the, the, the women who kind of ran the communities, made things comfortable, made it easy for people, the women, to live together. You know, they all, everyone found their own way of expressing, and they all came from, from rich backgrounds, from enormous suffering, from states of great happiness, um, from destitution. There were queens, there were courtesans, there were really poor prostitutes, there were middle-class women, there were women who had been slaves. And what was radical in the, in the Buddha's sasana, in both the, the nuns and the monks, was uh, that once someone became ordained, you know how in India the, the caste system was so strong, it rigidly applied. The caste you were born in, that determined your class, that determined your life. Once one became ordained, that was done away with. It was just all in order of ordination. So, you know, someone could have been a really destitute prostitute and she would be senior to, you know, the wife of a king. It had nothing to do with where you came from. And I find that inspiring as well. So I want to talk about one other... Well, I mentioned, I mentioned it the other night. One of the women who became the greatest teacher, who brought a lot of other women into the nuns' sangha, was this woman, Patachara. I told her story the other night, so I don't want to go into her story too much. Just to remind you, and for those who weren't here, she's the one who, she was middle class, and her parents had arranged a marriage, which she didn't want. She'd fallen in love with a servant, which was not done. So she, the servant, ran away and got married to another town. But when she got pregnant, she wanted to go back to her parents, to her family, to have the baby. But understandably, her husband really didn't want to go. So they waited until too late. They started out. She had the baby on the way, and then, oh, well, forget about it, and they went back to their home again. She got pregnant again, same story. And this time, I'll just make it short, she starts to have the baby again, on the way. You think they would have learned, but no. So she starts to have the baby again. A big storm starts coming. Her husband goes out to cut some brush to make a shelter. He's bitten by a poisonous snake and dies. She doesn't know what happens to him. She just has the baby. She doesn't know where he is, but gets up the next morning and then starts to walk and finds his body, grief-stricken. And she keeps on going to her parents' home, has to cross a really swollen river, in the course of that crossing, both of her children get swept away and die. So she's almost crazed by now. Keeps going to her parents' home, gets to the edge of the town, and they've had this huge storm as well, and says to the first man she meets, where is the home of her family? 
And he says, ask me anything, but don't ask me that. He says, that's the only thing I want to know. And he said, see that smoke? That's from the funeral pyre. The storm caved in the house, and both parents and your brother were killed. So she loses it. I mean, goes, really goes insane. Wanders for years. And people just throw things at her. She wanders around crazed until she comes finally to the Buddha. And even there, not Ananda, but the, some of the other lay people around pick up things and throw them at her, trying to drive her away. You know, don't bother the holy man. But of course, he says otherwise. And he says, uh, she says, uh, sister, recover your senses. And she does. She's naked also. She's lost her clothes. So a kind man gives her a cloak. She comes and sits in front of the Buddha. And remember, this is where I said, uh, I think it was last week, how I love the Buddha's response. She tells him her whole story. And this is where the, the power of speaking truth to suffering, not, oh, too bad, you know, but Padachara, don't think you've come to someone who can help you. In your many lives, you have shed more tears for the dead than there is water in the four oceans. And this helps her. And he then goes on to say that when you come to die, no one can help you. None of your kin can help you. Nobody else can help your suffering. You have to practice and understand for yourself. And so she does. You know, she ordains and becomes a nun. Now, what I also love about her story, it's not one of these, oh, okay, that's what you say, completely awakened, that's the end of it. No, she had to practice quite some time and have some struggles. But her poem is a lovely poem because she's describing in this poem the moment of her awakening. And it can really, I can anyway, really relate to it. It's just so precise. And it could be any of us. She's saying, when they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. This is, this is a good poem about why being continuous, even when you're doing other things than sitting or walking, is really valuable. Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. That's also kind of a pun, you know, on the word nibbana. Because, you know, nibbana kind of means going out in a way. But isn't that lovely? You get the sense of the struggle. And that's something I love. There are many poems that reflect the struggle these women go to. It's not all, oh, the Buddha said this and I'm enlightened, like Kema, that queen I told you about. You know, That's a rarer story than the struggle. But Patachara had many, you can imagine, I can imagine, because of the enormity of her suffering, what she went through, she was able to really help others with great compassion. And there are, you know, quite some poems, I'll just read one, that refer, without using her name, but they refer to her, how she helped them. Maybe you get a sense from this one of her compassion. This poem's by a woman named Chanda, and she also had lost all her family to some uh, kind of plague or disease. So her parents, her husband, her children, everyone died but her. And because, as I said, your livelihood of a woman really depended on the male family. There was no one left. She had to then go from house to house begging for food, for her subsistence. And um, when she finally came to Patachara and encountered the Dhamma, she'd really been suffering for a long time. 
So this is her poem. I was in a bad way, a widow, no friends, no children, no relations to give me food and clothes. I was a beggar with a bowl and stick and wandered house to house in the heat and cold for seven years. But I met a nun who had food and drink, and I went up to her and said, take me into the homeless life. She was Patachara. Out of pity, she guided me in leaving home, encouraged me, and urged me to the highest goal. I took her advice. It wasn't wasted. But do you notice the first thing? I met a nun who had food and drink. I mean, in other words, Patachar, what did this woman need first? She needed food. She needed sustenance. And do you just get a sense of that natural compassion, not, you know, often, I may be totally projecting like onto you, but often when I would read some of the suttas and they sound kind of formal, it can all sound very much like the Buddha or the monk is just kind of preaching and everyone says, oh, yes, reverend sir, and, and that's it. You kind of don't get the human quality. But of course, there's this sense, this poor, emaciated beggar woman comes, and the first thing Patichara does isn't preach the Dhamma, gives her, give her some food, you know? And then she's interested and wants to learn the Dhamma and asks. So I quite like that. And I want to talk about then one other woman who became uh, a great teacher. She actually, um, Dhammadina, the the Buddha referred to her. A lot of them had kind of uh, nicknames. Dhammadina was considered the foremost in preaching. In other words, in giving uh, Dhamma instruction, Dhamma talks. She was the foremost among the nuns. And she came from a very... Um, privileged background. And her story is funny, but it's kind of an an easy story. She was the wife of an important man in Rajagaha, and they had a very happy marriage. So she wasn't coming from suffering at all. But one, one day her husband had been out and about hearing the Buddha teach. And actually it shows up in several of the stories that the wives of rich women or the wives of kings actually couldn't get around so much. I'll mention it in later. So the men could go here teaching, and the women's servants could often have more freedom to move around and hear the Buddha teaching than the rich women themselves. So she was home, and her husband came back this day um, from hearing the Buddha preach. And usually he would come in, and they'd sit and eat together and have a very friendly meal. And instead, he just walked by without noticing her. So right away, of course, she thought, is he angry? What did I do? What's wrong? You know, this I really relate to, too, right away. What did I do wrong? Why is he not nice to me? But he called her then and said he had gotten so inspired hearing the Buddha teach. He'd really had a deep realization, and he wanted to renounce the world and become a monk. And he realized that left her in a bind, but he said he would give her all his wealth, She could do with it whatever she pleased, and she'd be taken care of. He was going to go off. She could stay in the home, go back to her family, whatever. So she thought about it. She said, you know what? I also want to renounce. So the bhikkhuni order existed at this time. He said, okay. And he respected her wishes, and he sent her off, you know, in great fanfare, and being carried in a litter, you know, off to to the nuns, to the bhikkhuni sangha to ordain. And she did. She ordained, she practiced very hard, and she was one who didn't have to practice for such a long time to really achieve the highest awakening. And later, she was wandering with some other bhikkhunis, and she came back to Rajagaha, where she had lived. And lo and behold, her husband had changed his mind and had not become a monk. He was still, you know, hanging out in Rajagaha, doing his business, whatever. (laughs) Just a little dig. Sayada Upandita also often likes to say that women make the best yogis. I just thought I'd tell you that. Um, but her husband was still quite, uh, he was still quite a devoted follower of the Buddha. And when she came back, he went to her, not as his former wife, but as a respected nun, 
and sat at her feet and asked for teachings. Now, again, in India of this time, this is revolutionary. And so for Dhammadina, what we have, we don't have a poem. What we have is a whole sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, the sutta number 44, is basically the series of questions that her former husband asked to Dhammadina and the answers that she gave. I'm not going to read the sutta. It's a fairly long sutta, and they're very uh, subtle and complex questions about the nature of personality view, how to abandon it, the nature of consciousness, all kinds of things. Very subtle sutta. And he asks her all these, she answers, and then the reason it's in the Majima is because afterwards he goes and tells the Buddha everything he said, everything Dhammadina said, which is commonly what happens after someone other than the Buddha has given a talk. It's always reported to the Buddha. And if it made it into the suttas, it's because the Buddha said, as he said after this, he said, you know, Dhammadina is a very wise woman. I would have answered exactly as she did. Just what she said, such is its meaning, and so you should remember it. He's basically saying that her words are, it's called Buddhavachana, or words of the Buddha. It's basically giving the stamp that her words are the equivalent of the words of the Buddha. So that's really quite a, quite a powerful statement in terms of the realization and, and the power to communicate it of this woman, Dhammadina. And she as well, there were quite a few women who um, she was their teacher, their guide in coming into the sasana, coming into the sangha and in their practice. But I want to read um, a few of the hard time practice poems, partly because I like them. They seem so real and uh, they're short. And just because it, yeah, it just gives something we can really relate to. Some of them are really, I mean, (laughs) hard time practice. So the first one is from a woman known as Sama. And she came to, she ordained in great sorrow at the death of one of her friends. And maybe I'll tell the story of that in a little bit. But this is her poem. She was struggling for 25 years after she ordained. Just so you know, it's not all like, you know, three months or so. It was 25 years since I turned away from home, and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Can you relate? 25 years, we're not talking two weeks or two months. I had no peace because I didn't know my own mind. Then suddenly I was shaken with dread, remembering the words of the conqueror, that means the Buddha. Because of the pain of things, I love to be alert. I have finished with craving. The Buddha's teaching has been done. It is the seventh day since my craving died. Because of the pain of things, I love to be alert. That's, to me, that's like a, a, a pith, pith line, a pith teaching of the Buddha's Dhamma. You know, because what, how does delusion work? How does denial work? Because of the pain of things, I love to space out. You know, because of the pain of things, I love to distract myself. That's how, you know, we live our lives in delusion and confusion. It's really a great heart, a great commitment, a great faith that says, because of the pain of things, I love to be alert. But really knowing that awakeness takes us right through the core of the pain and from the pain out to freedom. But it's not by avoiding the pain. 25 years, I didn't know peace. Okay, here's another one. This woman's name is Uttama. And this is another very specific poem. She came from a banker's family. And so she came from a pretty easy background. And she practiced hard, but this is another specific incident poem. 
Four or five times I left my cell. I had no peace of mind, no control over my mind. I went to a nun I thought I could trust. And they say, this is Patachara here again. She taught me the Dharma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception, and earth, water, fire, and wind, the elements. I heard what she said and sat cross-legged seven days full of joy. When on the eighth I stretched my feet out, the great dark was torn apart. But can we can really relate? I kept going in and out of her cell, in and out of her cell. I had no peace of mind, no control over my mind. And, you know, we all have sittings like that. We may not all sit for seven days with cross-legged full of joy, but that quality of that willingness to persevere, that's really lovely. You know, this is one of my favorites. Sometimes I don't read it. My friend said I shouldn't read it because it's too depressing, but I like it. This is, just not to give you guys any ideas, though. This is from, the, the, about Siha. Siha means lioness. That's her name. And she was the niece of a very famous general of the Lichavi sect, who show up from time to time in different suttas. So you can imagine being the daughter of a general, she might have a little bit of striving and a little bit of needing to excel going on. But she heard you know, Buddha preach, Gotama preach, and then she decided to enter the nun's order, and she very sincerely practiced for seven years. Nothing, you know, nothing happened. And she got so distressed, she got so uh, filled with despair that she couldn't take it anymore, and she decided to kill herself. This is what I mean about not giving you guys any idea. But just notice, it's a mind state. She just had this mind state of deciding to kill herself. She acted on that mind state. Now, this is what we have the wisdom not to do, right? But she acted on it. But she went to hang herself. But obviously, just at the moment that she was putting the rope about her neck and about to hang herself, she woke up. <laughs> but I don't advocate relying that that would happen. You know, It's just like trying to pay attention to the pain, but really you're paying attention so you know it'll go away, how it knows it doesn't work. This is the same. <laughs> so, anyway, this is her poem. Obsessed by sensuality, I never got to the origin but was agitated, my mind beyond control. I dreamed of a great happiness. I was passionate, but had no peace. Pale and thin, I wandered seven years, unhappy day and night. Then I took a rope into the forest and thought I'd rather hang than go back to that narrow life. I tied a strong noose to the branch of a tree and put it round my neck. Just then, my heart was set free. Obsessed by sensuality, I dreamed of a great happiness. I was passionate, but had no peace. And that really rings true, doesn't it? Doesn't sound like just some kind of stock statement. And you know that sense we have of where you're hitting yourself against the wall, against the wall. We don't know how to let go until finally we get to the point where we just totally give up and it happens by itself. That's why it knows. That's why we can't fool it because it happens by itself. So that's Siha, the lioness. Okay, one more. I always get into these. This is Mita Kali. Now she entered the order when she heard the Buddha give the Maha Satipatthana Sutta. Can you imagine actually hearing the Buddha give the discourse of the Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta? I mean, can you imagine that? (laughs) No, not really, but that would be something. Anyway, that inspired her to become a nun. But it's said that up until then, she 
had the reputation of being a very difficult person, very angry, unpleasant, very self-centered. So, you know, she really worked on herself as a nun, but she had some work to do, and it was hard for a while. Again, this is her story, her poem. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then, as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. That particular um, image she gives of uh, life is short, watching the elements of the body kind of decay, that's used often. And it just wants me to mention that there are uh, quite a few poems of nuns, of women that became nuns when they were quite old in their life. And sometimes people come to practice, you know, rather late in life. We run, we run into it often, and they'll be, it's not uncommon then to say, oh, I wasted so much of my life. I could have been practicing, you know, all those years. And that could be whether you start at 20 or 30 or 40. It's easy to get into that, I wasted my life, you know, I could have been. But that's just not relevant, you know. It doesn't matter. And so there's, again, stories of women who became nuns really quite late in life. But through their great dedication and faith and practice, again, we're also able to really come to some understanding, come to some freedom. In fact, when I was, I was a nun for a little while in Thailand, quite a few years ago. And in Thailand, I didn't run into the same... Um, the same support for nuns or the same amount of nuns and dedication of nuns and nunneries that I see in Burma. I think they're starting to be a resurgence in Thailand. But the places I was, which was admittedly only two or three places, there were only very few nuns, and many of them were really quite elderly. And I really have no way of knowing how they related to practice, but I was told that in some cases old women would become nuns just sort of like an old age home. They didn't have somewhere else to go. And that's kind of sad. But it doesn't have to be that way, and so it's, it's not for these women. So I wanted to just read one poem from the woman who was just called Dhamma. And she was a very good wife, very obedient wife. She wanted to ordain younger in her life, and her husband said no. She was, you know, had a, a respectable middle-class marriage. And she was very uh, devoted to the Buddha, but her husband said no. And so in the way of a devoted and honorable Indian wife, she respected her husband's wishes, stayed home, and was quite devoted until he died. And then when he died, she ordained. And her realization experience, again, it's described from one example, it happened because of her aging body and the problems with it. said, I wandered for alms. I leaned on a stick. My whole body was weak and trembled. Suddenly I fell down and could see clearly the misery of this body. My heart was freed. Now see, I find that quite inspiring. I could see clearly the misery of this body. My heart was freed. It's really a different way to go with it than, ah, oh, uh, uh, I can't, you know, handle it. It's all falling apart, bitch and groan. <laughs> you know, to really see it 
It frees the heart from clinging, from false identification. Here's another one from a woman named Chitta. Same kind of thing. Though I am thin, sick, and lean on a stick, I have climbed up Vulture Peak. Robe thrown down, bowl turned over, leaned on a rock, then great darkness opened. One thing these women possessed, for sure, is a real, besides faith, a real strong uh, commitment, perseverance, energy. It may not be the energy, you know, of a young person who can go all day, but the energy of steady perseverance, you know. That's quite inspiring. We all have that capacity. It doesn't matter if we're not as strong as we used to be or can't remember what we used to remember. We can still be present with that faith and perseverance moment after moment. And then I just want to mention a couple of lay women who didn't ordain as nuns, but their stories make it into, into this um, one is the woman Samavati. She was the queen of King Udena, one of the queens. She's the woman who, because of her death, Sama became a nun. Now, Samavati was very generous and loving, and she was a great devoted follower of the Buddha. She was said by the Buddha to be the lay woman who was most skilled in spreading metta. She was a very powerful metta being. But because she was the wife of a queen, no, she was a queen, the wife of a king, she didn't have the freedom to follow the Buddha and hear his teachings. But, and this I find very interesting, her servant woman, whose name was Kujutara, she, the servants could go about, they'd go to the market, they'd buy things, and they'd get around where the higher women couldn't. And so... um, Samavati used to send Kajutara every day to the market with money to buy flowers to put in front of her altar. And Kajutara was doing this thing of keeping half of the money, only buying half, half as much with the flowers as she was supposed to and keeping the rest of the money. And she was doing this for so long, and Samavati just didn't, didn't uh, suspect her. But then one day Kajutara heard the Buddha teach. It was so inspired, in fact, it said that she had a, a little awakening and she came back and confessed it all to Samavati, who, because she was so skilled in loving kindness, readily forgave her and said, but you have to tell me what this teacher said. And so, Samav- so Kajutara had this prodigious memory. And she actually would go and hear the Buddha talk and come back and share it with Samavati and all of her, her women, friends, to the point that one of the smaller books in the Pali canon, the book that's called the Itivutaka, is said to be poems and prose that was remembered and related by Kajutara, the whole book. So both of these women had very profound understanding. So what happened is Samavati, one of her co-queens, was very jealous of her because she was so beloved of the king, beloved of everybody. Why was she beloved? Because she was filled with metta. That, to make a long story short, this other queen got so jealous that she locked Samavati and all of her women in a building and set fire to it, and they were all killed in the fire. So it wasn't all peaches and cream back then either. But the Buddha said, because with his psychic mind he could tell, the destination of people in their next life. He said that all of those women had to some degree awakened. And that was really thanks to the teachings that Kajutara was able to share. I find that quite lovely. Okay, and I'll just end with one other story and poem of a different kind of woman. And this is a woman who was a courtesan, basically a really high-class prostitute. They had both you know, poor, low-class prostitutes and courtesans in this society seemed to be very, very respected. 
in this society. If you were a very rich courtesan, you're the courtesan, you know, for kings and the high class men of the culture. So this woman, her name is Amba Pali, and she was considered the most beautiful woman in Vesali. In fact, she was so beautiful that she was found under a mango tree. And Ambapali kind of means mango, guardian woman. And as she grew up, she was so beautiful that all the different rich men and kings were fighting over her. So they resolved this by making her the official courtesan of the whole town of Vesali. <laughs> and somehow that's like, that wasn't a, a shameful thing. That gave her great prestige and great wealth. You know, she was very well respected, this beautiful Ambapali. And so, you know, she actually had a son by a king of the time, King Bimbisara. And there's stories about her in the suttas where she would come to visit the Buddha and invite him and all his bhikkhus to come for a meal with her. And he would accept and go. There was, there was kind of no shame, but he would tell his men, he told his bhikkhus, keep your eyes down. She's very beautiful. Don't let yourself get distracted by her beauty. But it's totally appropriate to appreciate her generosity and her support of the Sangha. You know. So, at some point, her, her son that she had by King Bimbasara, he became a monk also. And at some point, he talked his mother into becoming a nun. And it's said that she came to her, her really deep understanding by studying impermanence in her own aging body, in her own. Now, this is someone who'd been very beautiful and made her, her whole life was around how beautiful she was. So her poem, I I will only read part of it because it's quite long. I like it because it has a sense of humor, at least to me it has a sense of humor. My hair was black and curly, the color of black bees. Now that I am old, it is like the hemp of trees. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. Fragrant as a scented oak, I wore flowers in my hair. Now because of old age, it smells like dog's hair. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. It was thick as a grove, and I parted it with comb and pin. Now because of old age, it is thin, very thin. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My eyes flashed like jewels, long, black. Now they don't make anyone look back. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My teeth were beautiful, the color of plantain buds. Now because of old age, they are broken and yellow. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. She kind of goes on through all different parts of her body. And she ends it with, this is how my body was. Now it is dilapidated, the place of pain, an old house with the plaster falling off. But this isn't, that's not coming from a place of complaining. It's coming from a place of, how can I be attached to this? A place of awakening. So I will just end with this one poem. This is from Uttama. The Buddha taught seven factors of enlightenment. They are ways to find peace, and I have developed them all. I have found what is vast, and empty, the unborn. It is what I've longed for. I am a true daughter of the Buddha, always finding joy in peace. I have ended the hunger of gods and humans, and I will not wander from birth to birth. I have no thought of becoming.
May we all have no thought of becoming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.